Why, hello and welcome. Welcome to the Peer Pressure Podcast. I am Diane, sometimes known as Diane Kamikaze, and I am your host. The reason why I do this podcast is because I like to say I am a champion of heavy music. I've always found my favorite songs since I was a young kid had riffs, hooks, were either metal, hardcore, hard rock, or punk, or something fairly aggressive in attitude and sound. And I am all about appreciating the people that keep that world going, whether they're musicians, webmasters, other podcasters, record label and festival owners. It's important to me to recognize what these people do in that realm of music. So I am here to bring them to you in a different context, more than a Wikipedia entry or a press release, a little more personal and a lot more fun. I'm a rocker for life, and I hope these episodes do make a difference. Send me feedback at diane at wfmu.org. And my Facebook page is Diane Kamikaze Farris, Rocker for Life. Like my page there, and I will keep everybody updated on podcast episodes in that space. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned. And my guest today really needs no introduction. And I'll tell you who he is anyway. Ed Stasium. Producer extraordinaire. And really, really great guy. Produced so many of the Ramones' records. Smithereens. Gladys Knight. Very accomplished. And very humble. This was recorded in uh, November of 2017 live. You can always go check the WFMU archive to listen to some of his song choices. It was a full peer pressure show with him guest DJing. So here is Ed Stasium. Please stay tuned. With my guest, who I believe is here. Ed, are you there? I think so. I think so, too, my very special... Oh, good. Here I am. <laughs> you didn't know you were there or not, did you? I never know. It's early in the morning for me. That's right, how, it is. How's, how's, how's the lovely afternoon in fabulous New Jersey, East Orange? I had an aunt in East Orange. Aunt Sally lived there. Oh, really? Yeah, back in the 50s and 60s. Well, she had, fabu- she had a fabulous apartment. I remember. It was huge. East Orange was lovely for a while, and then, um, and actually, we are in. We sit in Jersey City, but our license is yeah. associated with East Orange, so that's what our actual legal ID is. Uh-huh. We did used to be on the campus of, of Uppsala College there for many, many years. Um, right, right. And, yeah, and now we're we're in uh, in Jersey City, where it's hip and cool. And East Orange was getting scary by the time that we moved. So. Yeah, so I understand. And, you know, if you're a hipster, you got to be in Jersey City. I think, I think, well, I would hate to say that I'm a hipster because I certainly... Nah, you're not a hipster. I wouldn't. You're, you're a cool, you're a cool person, Diane. Diane Kamikaze. Oh, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, was born, I was actually born in Jersey City. You were? There was a, fa- there was a famous uh, maternity hospital. I don't recall the name of it, though. Wow. <clears throat> and it was named after the wife of some corrupt New Jersey... Uh, Jersey City politician. Of course it was. Yeah. Welcome yeah, to Jersey. Was, uh, put the shame, but the name still stayed on the uh, maternity hospital. I could probably Google it and find out what it was. Oh, that's pretty. That is pretty funny. Uh-huh. And uh, 
So, well, thank you for joining us. And uh, oh, my my pleasure. Thanks for um, <laughs> thanks for asking me. Yeah, yeah. You you don't sleep apparently. You're um, and folks. Uh, Ed has uh, a a discography on his website, which is edstasium.com. Um, and it's like it's just ridiculous. And I know it's not even complete. But when do you find time to sleep? And I I, I, I sleep I sleep often, and I like it <laughs> as often as I can. You know, um, they say the older you get, the less sleep you need, and it seems to be very true because I I usually wake up even if I go to bed at two a.m. I'm my eyes are cracking open at you know six six thirty seven o'clock. Wow. And they're usually wow. I usually stay in bed and try to fall asleep a little more, but um, not sleeping as much as I did when I was young. Man, I used to sleep by like twelve hours easy. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, what is it? Um, what actually got you into engineering? But wait, before that, let me talk about something more important. Okay. Which is I Google, I Googled the maternity hospital in Jersey City. Yes. And it's called Mar- Margaret Egg. Maternity Hospital. Egg? Hey. Oh, hey. H-A-G-U-E. Oh, oh, I see. Very good. That's where I was born, right down the street from where you're broadcasting from. Probably. I'm, I'm going to wave on more, my way home. More than 350,000 babies of record were born there <laughs> from, 19, from 1931 to 1979. Wow. Including, including yours truly. There you go. Mm-hmm. Oh, we'll have to. Okay. I've completely forgotten what the question was that you asked. Um, just, just um, how, how did, what initially how got get, you? What, yeah, what initially got you into engineering? Oh, it's a long story. Well, you can pop around, and you, I'll you got interrupt, an hour interrupt you. I do actually. <laughs> um, boy, where did where did it start? Um, you know, well, music was always around the house. Oh, good. In the you know early fifties, mid fifties, uh, we lived in. I remember, I barely remember living in Kearney, New Jersey, for my first year, and then we moved into uh, the suburbs, a little town called Greenbrook, in the uh, Plainfield, the Brunswick, Somerville oh, yeah. area. That's in like the flood area, Route Twenty Two. Actually, yes, it, it, that's totally correct. As a matter of fact, I was living in a house with my first wife and my uh, son, Jason, when he was like a toddler, not even a toddler, in Greenbrook. I was living there in a rented house, and uh, I was in Detroit recording Gladys Knight and the Pips, and I called in home, and um, my wife, Debbie, was freaking out um, because it was flooding. The water was coming in the house, and we actually, my home was flooded on Mm. that floodplain in New Jersey in 1973. Wow. Came home the next uh, that evening to find all my friends like sweeping out the house, sweeping the mud out. Never forget that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So how long did yeah. you, were you in New Jersey for? And well, and yeah. So let's go to the. Yeah. No. We, the narrative. The narrative, <laughs> boy. Um, <clears throat> so there's always music around the house. There's a record player, not a stereo, a record player. A little, mm-hmm. I remember a green metallic webcore uh, record player. And then uh, I got uh, my uh, friend, my friend Ricky Beskowski, his dad, uh, got a couple of these uh, little RCA 45 players. And uh, he got one for Ricky, one for myself. And uh, music was always there. But on New Year's Eve, I think it was like 1959 or 1960, I I went to a 
New Year's Eve party with my mom and dad. My dad worked at Western Electric in um, in Kearney there. Um, the building is actually still there. I don't know what it's doing, but they took down the Western Electric sign. Oh, you recall cool. that you, you, you were able to see it from the Pulaski Skyway. Oh, okay. It was, uh, you know, on the on the east, kind of on the east coast, in the in the, uh, in the harbor there. In the swampy kind the of big, area. Big blue, big blue Western Electric sign, uh, neon lights, and um, he used to carpool every day with a group of uh, guys from Central New Jersey, and one of the guys, his name is Roy Curbo. Don't ask me how I remember this stuff. Um, had a New Year's Eve party, went to New Year's Eve party, and instead of there being <clears throat> a record player there or a stereo, there was a tape recorder, which I had never seen before. Hmm. You know, m- mind you, this is, it's probably like 19, it was probably New Year's Eve 1959 going into 1960. And, you know, being a kid in, you know, rural New Jersey, working class parents, I didn't, I didn't know a tape recorder from Adam. I never even heard of one. And, um, the, uh, I was watching it, being fascinated by these two reels spinning around, and the uh, owner of the tape recorder, the owner of the tape recorder, um, came over and um, saw that I was fascinated with it and explained to me what was going on with it, and that he took that reel off, put on another reel, and recorded my voice and played it back, and uh, it was a big revelation for me. Oh, wow. And so that's how I just just got interested in tape recorders. That was my, my first interest in recording um, when I was, like, 10 years old. And uh, fortunately, my parents were always very supportive of my wacky little ideas, and uh, they would save up during the year to always get me a nice Christmas present. Oh, and so the following year, I got I got a little transistorized uh, Japanese tape recorder, battery operated. Nice, and uh, that's that's where it started. It does go on from there. Um, the following year, I got another tape recorder. This one was electric. It was a mono electric Fujiya, another Japanese brand um, tape recorder. And with that tape recorder, I would go around taping things. Uh, you know, conversations and music off the radio. I figured out how to <clears throat> go into my, my transistor radio, which um, my lovely Aunt Nadine gave me for a birthday present that year. And I figured out that with, with the tape recorder came all these little jacks and wires with, you know, alligator clips on them. And there, what did these do? So went to the back of the uh, transistor radio and clipped the leads onto the speaker and put it in direct and noticed how much better that that direct signal off the radio sounded than a microphone recording mm. the radio. And it goes on. Then I got interested in um, guitars. This fellow, Wayne DeRose, I remember all his names. I can't believe they're popping up. Um, and I remember he had a, a Gretsch Country Gentleman, and this was probably around 1961, and uh, he came, a friend, of, a friend of his, a friend of mine, told him that I had a tape recorder and he wanted to come over and record some stuff. So when I was 11 years old, I, I was recording like neighbors doing music in my little bedroom in, the, in Greenbrook. Did you and ever, it, did you make a nuisance of yourself? Like when you were fascinated with the tape recorder, just walking around, like recording your parents talking and that kind of thing? With, like, get out of with here. The, um, with the, um, 
little transistor one. I definitely did. <laughs> uh, I, I definitely was a nuisance. I recorded phone conversations. I remember uh, I got it on Christmas, and I remember this like like it was yesterday. It was so exciting for me. The first thing I recorded was, um, again, uh, my buddy Ricky Beskowski, his dad, who got us those 45 RCA uh, record players. Um, I called him up to, you know, tell him about it, and his dad answered the phone and sang, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I don't know if that's the right key, but uh, that's exactly what he, uh, you know, he, and I recorded that and played it back for him, and, you know, I was just recording everything. Being a nuisance, as you said, yes, for nice. sure. Nice. And, of course, of course, the batteries ran out about an hour into it. Uh-huh, yeah. The town pharmacy was open in, you know, in New Jersey, and my dad went down there on Christmas to get some more batteries for me, and the sweetheart that he was. Nice, nice. <laughs> That's awesome. And um, what was your first real studio situation? Oh, my. Um, well, you know, throughout high school, I was the guy with the... Uh, give me a put a little more into that story. Mm-hmm. You know, I ended up, um, you know, working at ShopRite. ShopRite has the answer. Is that a plug? Do I get paid for that? You'll um, have to ask ShopRite. I will. I'll, have, I'll give them a call. <laughs> um, I worked at ShopRite in, in Dunellen and um, saved up money. And my parents uh, would put in half for uh, a tape recorder that I got, a Lafayette tape recorder. And uh, in 65, I saved up money and got a, a Stratocaster, a Fender Stratocaster. Nice. And I was the kid in high school who had a tape recorder and one, carrying a tape recorder in one arm and a strat in the other arm. And I would, uh, you know, be in the, the high school cover bands and local garage bands all through high school. And I would record all that stuff. And um, got into bands and had several experiences, you know, with uh, my early bands. They were called the Cartoon, Men Working, Brandywine. Um, and. My first actual studio experience was probably, there was a, like a demo studio in Manhattan called Dick Charles. And I remember going there and recording a set of live material. Um, we also, I don't know, there was another, we went to another 8-track studio, did some demos in the band. Um, like 69, we went into Media Sound. Um, for some, so we got hooked up somehow with... Uh, Richie Havens uh, had a record company called Stormy Forest with his partner, Mark Roth. And uh, I don't know how it happened, but we got some kind of demo deal. And it was 1969, and we went into Media Sound. When it first started, it was a Scully 12-track in the room. There's actually pictures on my Facebook page way down there somewhere about, oh. from those sessions. Isn't that, and uh, Bob, Bob, Bob Margoloff, who was just about to have Stevie Wonder a knock, knock, knocking on his front door, mm. um, was, was the engineer on those sessions at Media Sound. It was the first time I was in Media Sound Studio A, which in years to come, and, you know, be doing Ramones records there and Genya Ravon and uh, countless other projects that I would do at Media. Um, so I was exposed to that early on. Um, like I said, Bob Margoff, who's a great engineer, uh, really, I respected him so much in those Stevie Wonder records uh, that he did, um, Talking Book, and um, Inner Visions, my favorite, actually, Inner Visions. Oh, amazing. Uh, just 
sound fantastic. They're, they're just well, really well put together. He produced them with uh, Malcolm Cecil, his partner, mm. and they're uh, they're they're. Um, large synthesizer called Tonto was in the Media Sound Studio A. They had they had, had a little uh, side project called Tonto's Expanding Headband Electronic Music. Wow. And uh, th- that that actually gave uh, Stevie Wonder the insight to track down Bob. And Bob has great stories about that. You'd have to talk to him about it. But, uh, mm. you know, apparently one day Stevie Wonder just ended up knocking out his apartment door somehow in Manhattan. Wow. Great, great story. <clears throat> so did that, did this, you know, um, got married very young uh, and uh, was living in my parents' basement. It was uh, one of those times. Um, I was in this, the band, Brandywine. We got a deal with Brunswick Records. Excuse me, I'm going to cough. <clears throat> Trump, I say. Trump. Mm-hmm. You get a rump out of you. Yeah. Um, Can you say the record label again? I didn't catch that. Uh, Bruns- Brunswick. Oh, Brunswick. Okay. Like the like the bowling like the bowling machines. Brunswick Records. Was it the same company? Uh, it, I don't know. It may have been. It looked, I, if I recall, it had the same logo. <laughs> I know Louis Louis Armstrong was on a label. It was kind of a you know it was one of those R and P rip off labels in the you know twenties and thirties forties, um, and uh, they would sign people and keep all the publishing probably. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, anyway, it's, it's funny how that happened because our manager, his name is Barry Landers, um, he was working for the New York Yankees as a publicist. And he even drove around in a Yankees car and had the logo on the side. Wow. And uh, he would hobnob with the people who had the uh, box seats. And this fellow, Nat Tarnapol, was the son of the founder of Brunswick. And he mentioned to Nat Tarnapol... <coughs> That he was managing a band, and and that article said, "Oh, I'll sign him." And he sight unseen, didn't even hear us. Wow. Said, "Okay, go to this, go to the studio in Chicago." So, in boy, try to remember, it was either 1970 or 71. I never even haven't thought of this in a long time. Uh, myself, the drummer Chip Miles, and the keyboard player Al Miller, Albert Miller, drove to Chicago, um, and Albert's like. 59 Plymouth or something, with all the gear in the car. And um, the bass player couldn't make it because he had a family, and uh, he, was a, he was a barber, and he couldn't close his shop. He had to work. So I actually played bass and guitar on that record. Oh. The, the fabulous Brandywine H-E-P record. Nice. Um, and that was a great studio experience. That actually was the one that kicked me over into the, uh, you know, yeah, this is what I really want to do. Mm-hmm. Because um, we had a fabulous engineer. Uh, Willie Henderson was the producer. He produced the Chai Lights records. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, Brunswick is more of a, an R&B, uh, you know, you know uh, black music kind of, you know, kind of label. Um, I think we were like the only white band ever signed there. Oh, cool. And, yeah. So Willie produced us. The engineer was the great Bruce Swedeen started engineering in Chicago uh, later on you know I mean he's like he did you know Count Basie Ella Fitzgerald all these great people wow. and then he moved to LA and became Quincy Jones's engineer nice. and did all the Michael did all the Michael Jackson stuff nice uh, yeah all, and just an incredible guy and I would ask him questions there was you know it was an Ampex 16 track he, he designed the console and 
would give me little hints about what was, you know, what he was doing and with the patch bay that I hadn't had that hands-on experience. So that really, you know, kicked in gear my desire to do something like that, even though I thought it was probably a far-fetched idea. And so when did it become something that you realized could be real? What were the steps? What happened next in terms of that interest for you? I was living in that house that got flooded in New Jersey. And, um, no, I'm going, no, I wasn't, I wasn't there. That was after. I'm sorry. Liar. Scratch that. Scratch that remark. I lied. (laughs) I totally lied. I was living in my mom and dad's basement with uh, my first wife, Debbie, and little Jason before we moved into the flood prone area. And, um, I, for some reason, you know, I was completely broke. I had, I remember having like 120 bucks in the bank. Were you and still working at ShopRite? No, I was working at a, um, a place in South Plainfield, New Jersey called Panel Oven Engineering, assembling uh, large electrical control panels for like um, water control. Very strange, big electrical. They look like sci-fi, you know, like an early sci-fi movie always and I also was working for Altec and uh, Ampeg the amplifier company in Linden I worked there at that time as well oh cool yeah yeah I worked there yeah that was crazy I worked on the assembly line for a little while then the shipping department anyway so with with no money for some reason I went and purchased two bicycles for myself and uh, Deborah at Bamberger's in Plainfield New Jersey Uh. Bamberger's Remember, remember Bamberger's? Yes. Yes, I do. Yeah. yeah was, they were like a sub, subsidiary of Macy's, I think. Yes. And I bought, bought two bicycles for no reason whatsoever with no money, and we were taking a ride, and I bumped into um, another a, a friend, Michael Bonagura, who I had played in bands with uh, before the Brandywine band. And uh, he says, Eddie. My dad knows this guy who's building a recording studio in, in Hillsboro, and he said we can go down there and record any time. So he started, he started, started, it was Tony Camello. So he was calling Camello. When can we come down? Is the studio finished yet? We ended up going down there like two weeks later, and nothing was done. I mean, the place was in shambles. <laughs> he, there was like a console on the floor. There was dust. There was an Ampex 16, Ampex 16 track there. Um, the window wasn't in. There was no floor in the studio. And I was actually, I hadn't gotten fired from Ampeg. Yes, I got fired from Ampeg. And I was collecting unemployment, living in my parents' basement. And uh, I started hanging out at the studio. And uh, Tony Camello's partner was Tony Bon Jovi. Aha. Yes. So Tony was cool with me going in there and I started doing little odd jobs. I, you know, I knew a little about soldering and wiring so I, I wired the patch bay. We built baffles. We built a drum booth. We laid the floor. Uh, and, you know, Tony was actually on staff at Media Sound at this time. Hmm. So I would be doing all this stuff with a worker named TJ uh, who was actually the carpenter building the place and Tony Camello. And, and Mike Bonagura would come down uh, occasionally and uh, help out. And once we got the studio going, I would just bring my friends in and start recording. I was winging it. Um, a funny little sidetrack story to this is very early on. This is probably, I think it's the summer of 72. 
it's not, yeah, 1972. And uh, Tony, like I said, was on staff at Media Sound in New York, where we had recorded with, with uh, the Men Working Band, later to become Brandywine, um, with Bob Margoloff. He was working on staff there, so I had actually been in the studio previously. And he says, hey, Eddie, you know, you want to see a real session? You want to come into New York with me? You're going to do Cool in the Gang and Fuzzy Feetin'. And I'm there, yeah, man, let's go. And he, was, he, he lived in Raritan. He still lived with his parents, uh, the Bon Jovi. He, and his parents, his whole family were, uh, it was a funeral. They were funeral directors. Wow. And it was the Bon Jovi Funeral Home, which is still in Raritan, and Tony's sister operates the place. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, and Tony would, I said, he said, meet me in New Brunswick. We're going to uh, park, park your car here. We're going to take a bus in. He used to take the bus into New York every day. Mm-hmm. Oh, I hate buses. <laughs> I do. I just, I get the, the, the fumes. Oh, I'm telling you. Um, so we went into uh, New York to Media Sound. And at, at that time, uh, Bob Walters, who was later to uh, put together Power Station with myself, Tony Bon Jovi, and Ed Evans and Bob Clear Mountain. Um, he was the manager of Media Sound. We went in, and they had like three-hour session blocks. You would book sessions in three-hour blocks. In the afternoon session, morning session, starting at like 10 or 11, I forgot when it was, uh, was Cool in the Gang for the whole, the whole day. And we actually went in there, and they, they were going to record a whole, just one song, do it, you know, finish, record it, mix it, the whole thing. Mm. So um, we do the track. I'm watching Tony set up and do the, watching the headphones. And uh, they, it was also, it was a, uh, an Ampex uh, MM1016 track as well there. And it was a custom console. I don't remember what kind of console it was. It was the same console that was there when I recorded uh, earlier with Bob Margoloff years before, only a few years before, um, and recorded the tracks and, you know, set up for vocals and we're ready to do a vocal and so Tony says to me, Eddie, I'm going to go out and get a sandwich. Do you want a sandwich? And he said, you, you engineer. And I'm there, what? Uh-huh. And he put me in the driver's seat. It was either sink or swim. And so he left and I started recording vocals and then... Uh, the fellow who's doing vocals uh, said, okay, give me another track. And I had, I had to just jump on it and figure out, okay, how do I get to another track? And go to the patch bay and, and figure it out. Then they wanted to do percussion. Then they wanted to do a guitar or whatever. And Cody, I thought he'd be back in like 10 minutes, go next door. No, he was gone for like two hours, two and a half hours. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I just, yeah, apparently this is a stunt that Tony Bon Jovi pulled on several people including uh, Ron St. Germain, Bob Clearmountain, um, for sure those guys. Wow. Um, yeah. And so, I, you know, I was really nervous. I had the hiccups. I couldn't get rid of the hiccups. Everybody's giving me a cure for the hiccups, you know, <laughs> eating sugar, you know, drinking a glass of water upside down, you know, also these, these crazy little um, cures for the hiccups. Oh, and so cute. about two and a half hours into it, um, Bob Walters comes into the studio, who is the manager, and starts. To, Did you know, you know everybody? Because Cool and the Gang had been recording there, you know, for quite a while, in, in and out, doing projects there at Media. Did he know you? No, he didn't know me. So he said, "Hi, Cool. How you doing?" He's saying hello to all the guys. He knew them all by name. And he looks at me. and goes, "Who are you? Where's Tony?" <laughs> <laughs> and, and as if on cue, the door to the control room opens up, and it's Tony. Going, "Eh, here's your sandwich." Oh and Bob God. goes, "Tony." 
who's this kid? What's he doing here? And Tony says, oh, that's Eddie. He's a great engineer. Don't worry. I went out and got a sandwich for him. And um, that's pretty much how I wow. you know, flew by the seat of my pants and got into the water and didn't think. So, and, uh, so what was going, do you know or can you remember what was going through your, your head at that moment? Like he leaves and it's like you got to, you know, everybody has their own reactions when they're under pressure. But that's like you just had to do it. Were you? Was it nervous? Was it a stomach thing? Yeah, I was, like I your was head definitely pounding? nervous, but I didn't want to show that I was nervous. Of I course, to, yeah. I put on a front like I knew what I was doing. You know, even though my palms were sweating, I remember there being beads of sweat on the console for my hands sweating. <laughs> so, I was so nervous, but I was acting cool. You know, uh, it all worked out. Um, it was. Uh, it was really a terrifying and gratifying experience it is terrifying i kind of like it sort of freaked me out just here like i'm just like oh my god like uh yeah eh, eh. but i guess you know <laughs> how, that, how do i how do i get to another track right oh, right oh, they want to do percussion now you know they want a different microphone but i figured it out and there was no assistant in the, there was no assistant in the room it was right. just me you know so there was no just... second engineer no assistant there's no runner wow it was well, tony just left me on my own and i got to hand it to him um, you know, that, uh, that gave me a big, big kick in the butt. That method and, works. And later on, uh, you know, he helped me with my career with the Ramones when, after I went to Canada and came back to New York. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, we're going to have to talk about your, your trip to, uh, to Canada and back. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a question that a listener uh, posted, and then we're going to get to some music. Um, just because, I mean, you have... You know, you have an entire world of achievement and stories and stuff. And I want to make sure that we don't um, just just all of a sudden talk the time away. Uh, question from listener Peter. Um, do you have to get into a different headspace for each different band or musical style? Or is it all pretty much the same from where you sit? Mm, boy, well, you're dealing, let's just say you're dealing with different personalities. I mean, you know, the, uh, the equipment's all the same. You're, you're just, you know, you're re- it's a medium. You're recording onto a medium, whether it be tape or, you know, putting it onto a, a hard drive. Um, but the different factor would be, for me, to deal with different personalities. The different personalities of the, uh, the different band members, the different styles of music, you know, and I pretty much stay in the rock field, so it's my, my, my first true love. But just you know, being, being able to deal with uh, the personality, the different personalities of band members, I think, is something that you really have to have a handle on. Well, that yeah, that's uh, that was something I learned years ago when I took recording and uh, you know a, a recording class. A teacher just was like, "You can learn all this tech stuff, but if you can't get along with people, like yeah, it's over." <laughs> yeah, that that's pretty much very much so the uh, most important thing. It was just, you know, getting along and, you know, trying to bring the artist's vision to fruition as best as you can. What percentage of the records that you've worked on, oh, I don't even know if it's, a, if, it, if it's a valid question to ask, but would you say that people came to you for a sound that you've provided before or because you are successful at really getting to, to the meat of what bands want? God, you know, I don't. I can't even answer that question. I have no idea. Honestly, I've been winging it. I've been hacking through this for you know forty-five years. Oh, you're such a hack. <laughs> I am. I'm a, 
I'm a freaking hack over here. I'm telling you. Um, I've just been very lucky. I've been at the right place, the right time, a little bit of talent, and a lot of luck. Seriously. Well, I've been very, very blessed in a lot of ways. And that is compounded. Um, certainly over the years. One, what a listener writes, he says, I remember that Ed was involved with a recording of one of the greatest breakbeats used in hip-hop, It's a New Day oh, by the Skull Snaps. That's very true. And uh, that came up very recently. I, I was up in uh, Los Angeles uh, recording a band that I recorded 31 years ago, The Long Riders, hmm. um, part of the Paisley Underground scene in Los Angeles in the mid-'80s. Yes. And we all, we all got together at uh, Dr. Dre's studio. Um, there's, a, there's a connection between the band, a fellow named Larry Chapman, and uh, who's Dr. Dre's um, right-hand, right-hand guy. Mm. And uh, we were able to use his, his private facility for the recording, which was great. It was, uh, he purchased the old Record One, uh, which was Val Garay's studio in the 70s and 80s. All the Ronstadt stuff was done there, all the great Ronstadt stuff. Oh, well. You know, all the... The Soft Rock uh, Hotel California, bits and pieces of different, the Eagles, mm-hmm. I don't know Hotel California, but Eagles, Fleetwood Mac, all the stuff that the Ramones didn't want to be, uh, we'll record it in the studio. Right. And, uh. and uh, so uh, Dre was there and we were chatting and I had, uh, I didn't know what song, and I, I brought that up because it was a band called The Skull Snaps and uh, yes. the beat is from... Uh, it's a song called It's a New Day. And uh, there's a lot of relevance to it. Um, it. The hook was Just Step to the Back of the Bus, um, a little funk outfit from uh, Newark, New Jersey. And uh, the beginning of the song is this drum thing. And it, it was it, apparently it's been used in hundreds of hip hop stuff. And I asked Dre about it, and he said, Oh, I know that. You know, he used it on, I think he, he said it was the, the second track on the first N.W.A. record. Oh, like, wow. Whoa. That makes a full circle, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and that also, the Skull Snaps was a bridge for me and Vernon Reed to get to do the Living Color record, uh, which is another entirely long story. You can tell it later if you want to, but uh, that him knowing that I did this Skull Snaps record, it was my first project, um, kind of bonded the deal because Vernon Reed learned how to play guitar by listening to that Skull Snaps record. Wow, really? Yep, really. That's and, and I found the record. I never had it, and I found it. Um, some, some dude was selling his, his possessions on Amsterdam Avenue down by 72nd Street where it meets Broadway. When Tau- no, it was like 60, it wasn't by 72nd, it was by 61st Street, it was by Tower Records. <laughs> when I was living on 78th Street, and I went through the records and uh, found the Skull Snaps record that I never had. Like the day before, I was to meet with Vernon, and I told him the story, and he, like, his hair stood up, I swear to God. Uh. He says, dude, dude, I learned how to play guitar by listening to that record. And he started hugging me and kissing me and stuff. Uh-huh. This is crazy, this is crazy, I can't believe it. <laughs> it was, it was, it's, uh, it's fascinating and uh, so yes indeed to answer uh, our listeners question the skull snaps it's a new day uh, it's on you can find it on YouTube um, and the, the first the intro to the song the drum beats are this uh, 
turned into a loop and has been used on many early hip-hop records. Ta-da. Ta-da. And, I, and mind you, I'll add to that that I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I didn't know how to mic anything. You know, I was guessing. Right. And, you know, and Dre's asking me, how'd you get that sound? I said, I have no idea. It's like, you know, the drums were, the drums were probably all on one track. Oh, right. <laughs> Heavily compressed. It's a cool sound. Mm-hmm. Check it out. I will. I definitely, I definitely will. Is the quality it, better? I think it is better, actually. Thank you. Uh, we'll, we'll have to ask Michael Ackerman, my attorney. He uh, texted me and said, man, it sounds like crap on the air. You're an engineer? <laughs> he said my P's were popping and my S's were distorting. Well, that, that so, is exactly what was happening. That's true. Um, yes, well, he, he knows. And he also um, believes that Sam Ulano was the drummer on the, the Art Carney track. Oh, really? Oh, that's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. We know Sam Ulano. Love Bo Diddley. I actually met him, uh, well, didn't meet him, but I saw him at an airport once, uh, and I ran, ran up to him and said, Mr. McDaniels, I'm such a big fan, would you sign my boarding pass? And he signed my boarding pass. <laughs> I'm always shy about doing, right, going up to people that I admire. Yes. Even when I work, even when I work with them. Um, and it was, uh, I took all I had to, it was at LAX and, uh, I took all I had to get up there to him and get that autograph. Hmm. But, uh, the story about Diddley was actually the first song that I learned on guitar before I even owned a guitar. I, I you know, played a little tiny bit on other friends and, uh, there used to be, you know, we used to have these hoot nanny get togethers, you know, when I was like 13 or 14 years old and a bunch of us kids were at this girl, Kathy Phillips house, uh, on the hill in the Wachung Mountains there in the Greenbrook area, and there were probably like 15 of us down there all playing guitars and hanging out, and uh, that was the first song I kind of learned and played in front of people and, and got a, a rousing response from the, uh, the audience. It was uh, a big memory, a very fine childhood memory for me. The crowd was on its feet. They were. They were whistling and screaming. Woo! Um, there, people were taking off their socks and throwing them at me. <laughs> I don't know what that meant. Uh, um, yeah. But uh, I lo- love Bo Diddley. Uh, love that stuff. Uh, love his guitars. Mm. And love the, love the sound of his guitars. I, I love the Ventures for the fact that you could, you know, there were guitar band, pre-Beatles, you could play along. That's how I learned, you know, play along with Walk Don't Run, uh, mm-hmm. Perfidia, Rambunctious. Those are all songs I played in my first band. How is it for you when you work with somebody that you admire? Like, you know, you you worked on Mick Jagger's solo records, things like that. I mean, who who gave you the most cause to be nervous around? I have to say that early in my career, I got to work with, uh, as engineer, for Jimmy Einer. He produced um, all the early Raspberry stuff and Three Dog Night. Oh, yeah. And worked at the record plant, and he came to New Jersey to work on a uh, record with Tony Camello uh, doing the arranging. Jimmy produced it, and I was in awe of this guy. I was so nervous. I was shaking when he was when I was working with him. I just wanted everything to work out. That's my first uh, recollection of being shaken up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, of course, when through Peter Wolf, I met a lot of my heroes, and through, you know, because I met... When I did the Peter Wolf record, when it, it, just after he left Jay Giles, we did it in New York, and we would have lots of 
visitors. You know, Dylan came by, Jagger came by, wow. Jagger sang on the record. And that wasn't actually, it wasn't that nervous for me. It was exciting, and you have to, I felt that I had to keep that excitement down a little bit and just, you know, and feel normalcy with these people. Right, move forward with what it is yeah. that you're there to do. Yeah. And, and then... What if you weren't there with a reason? Like if you were walking around with Peter Wolf and you walked up to Dylan and Jagger like you were somewhere else, would that would your behavior be different? Because I wouldn't I wouldn't walk up to them. I don't do that. I can't do it. It's really difficult. Mm. You know, if I'm if I'm backstage at a gig or and I see a, a person you just say Paul McCartney, I will not I will I would not in a million years walk up to the guy. Wow. I would have to you know, have somebody introduce me. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm really shy. I'm very shy that way. I'm shy about, you know, walking up to anybody and saying, hi, how are you? <laughs> Especially you in doing? that what voice. Going What's going on? My name's Eddie. I'm from New Jersey. <laughs> nice to meet you. Uh, mm-hmm. when, when did you move to the uh, West Coast? I, I moved twice. First time... I always wanted to move to the West Coast. I was always fascinated by California. My first trip to California was when I was working for Tony Camello at the, the studio, you know, Venture Sound in, 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 the, in Hillsborough, Somerville area, where we did the glass night stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, during that time, uh, my first trip to California was kind of unbelievable. We, we, were, um, we flew out on a... Uh, we were doing a movie for the company Fabergé. They got into a... Uh, got into movies and music production. Wow. And uh, we, he did a couple movies. Tony scored a few movies for Fabergé. And um, they flew us out on their private jet. So my first trip to California was on a, a, a Gulfstream, a Gulfstream 2. Nice. <laughs> and we stayed at the Beverly Hills Hotel. It was like, oh, this is California. This is nice. Gee, I could take this. Anyway, um, I always loved California. I made a couple trips out there with Tony, um, then pretty much stayed in New York. And then um, around 19, in March, it was March 17th. It was, no, it was March 12th. March 17th, St. Patrick's Day. Uh, March 12th of 1981. And uh, I had just kind of had it with the East Coast and wanted to give it a shot. And I moved out there. Um, March 12th of 81 and uh, did some couch surfing for a few months and kind of settled down for a few years. And, you know, I was uh, really couldn't get any work, didn't really do anything out there. I made some good friends. Uh, One good friend I met out there uh, was an engineer, producer, a friend of mine, Dave Jordan, who was working at a studio called El Dorado. I met him through Jerry Harrison. He did the Jerry Harrison solo record. Oh, right. Jerry Harrison's, Jerry Harrison's first solo record. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dave uh, somehow had a connection with Peter Wolf. I don't remember what the connection was, but he couldn't do the gig. So he called me and says, hey, Pete Wolf wanted me to do this uh, solo record. I can't do it. Are you interested? Actually, it was his manager, Gary Gunton. And I said, yeah, you know, give it a shot. And, uh, you know, Pete flew me out for an interview, and we, we got on really well. And um, when it turned out to be months and months of work, we were working in Boston, and then we moved to New York. He wanted me to mix it, but we were working at the Cars studio, Synchro Sound in Boston. And we, we were there from November 
to like, uh, I'm saying maybe January or February, February, February. And, um, uh, stayed at the Mayflower Hotel in Manhattan, which was my favorite place to be. It was right at the Central Park, uh, Central Park West. And, and right, right at the corner there. It was a great, great place. And, um, once I got back to New York uh, and started mixing at Right Track, um, I ran to a lot of old friends say, hey, you got to come back, you got to come back. So I came back to New York in um, the spring, March. I actually moved. My girlfriend at the time went back to L.A., packed up all the stuff, and uh, moved to New York at an apartment on 78th Street. And then that was the first time I moved to Los Angeles. And then the second time was in 1989, uh, when I was just doing so much work there that I decided to, you know, make the move out there for real. Mm-hmm. And then I stayed in uh, Los Angeles in Sherman Oaks from 89 to 2003. So was that a period of time where engineers and, and producers mostly were were not tied with a studio? It was just kind of like there was a, a budget for a record, a producer was hired, a studio was chosen, like that kind of thing? Or were you tied to any particular studio? No, um, I, I was not. Um, I was on staff in three three studios. Mm. Uh, I was it was Venture Sound was my the first studio, and that was the place in New Jersey where we did uh, Gladys and Bazooka's Dynamite. And <laughs> then I I moved to Canada. I uh, I saw an ad in uh, one of the audio trade magazines called DB, and there was an ad for a uh, engineer at the studio Morin Heights, which is in uh, a little town called Morin Heights in the Laurentian Mountains, 45 miles north of Montreal. Got the gig up there, and they had a... They had, I was always a fan of British recording and the British methods, and they had the first Trident A-series recording console in North America. And uh, I went up there. It was just the most beautiful studio in the world. It was a residential studio. They had a house for the artists, and it had windows in the control room. It was fantastic. And it had the Trident console, that Studer machines, all the outboard gear in the world. Uh, a great engineer, Nick Blagona, was on staff there. So we're still buddies. He gave me a lot of tips on the British way of recording. And so I was up in, I was up there for a year. And I ran to Tony Bon Jovi uh, when I was on a trip back to New York. And he told me that he and Bob Walters were starting a new studio. They were both leaving Media Sound uh, to look, and they were going to build a new place. They asked me if I wanted to join the team. And they paid my expenses, and I came back and got a place in New Jersey. My daughter was born right when I was uh, moving back to New Jersey. So that was in 76. Uh, that's when I started with the Ramones and Tony. And also the purpose, original purpose, was to start the new recording studio, uh, which was just in the dream state stage at that time. We were looking around for buildings that uh, Tony and Bob were going to buy. During that time, I started working with Tony as, a, as an engineer and what I thought was a co-producer. So the, I was on staff. That studio did become Power Station. Um, oh, got it. I was told I was the chief engineer, but I think he told Bob Clearmountain the same thing. Because <laughs> 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 um, I, I left early on. Uh, they wanted to... Uh, they, they were doing the... Uh, earlier in this uh, conversation, I mentioned that uh, Media Sound did uh, three-hour sessions. Yes. Uh, like, and they, they wouldn't do a lockout, and I was going to work with Bob Margoloff, he comes back into the story again, mm-hmm. uh, with a band called Riff Raff, a New York rock band. And we wanted to do it at Power Station, but 
Bob Walters would not lock out the room. So I really, and they were doing, they were doing a lot of jingles there at the time, and I didn't really want to be into the jingle thing. I wanted to, do, I wanted to be a rock and roller. Mm-hmm. And uh, I we left. I left Power Station amicably, and uh, we recorded the project at Media Sound, and mixed it at Caribou Ranch, which was another real treat to work at. So, the three studios I was on staff uh, were Venture, the Studio Morn Heights, and Power Station. And then I left Power Station in the in the early winter, like November of 1978. Mm. And I've been independent since then, to answer, to answer your question with a really long answer. That's okay. It, yeah. That clarifies a lot, though, because, you know, especially in the 70s and 80s, back then you knew the names of producers. What I always thought was, like, oh, you know, some band is sitting around and the label goes, well, who do you want to produce your record? And then somebody goes, Tony Visconti. And they go, okay, well, we'll call him and we'll see if he can come out. Like... You know, like that kind of thing. That's what I've always, always imagined. So, and I, you know, so that's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so now you have your own place. Yeah, you know, it's very affordable these days. You know, I don't have a large console. I don't have a vintage Neve or an SSL in here. And when need be, you know, as I mentioned, I was just, just spent two weeks with the Long Riders up in Los Angeles in a, in a, in a real studio, which is a lot of fun. We just had a great time. But I'm doing a lot of mixing these days and doing a lot, a lot of indie artists. It's cozy here at the house. I have the, the home set up as a studio. And the drums are set up in the living room. I have, a, I have a guitar room with amps in it. and They're all in the spare bedrooms. It's a large home. And it's isolated so we can be as loud. We can be as loud as we want to all night long. That's yeah. really, that's what it's all about, really, anyway. Yeah. 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 And it's really cozy. Um, the equipment these days uh, sounds great. You know, I have a lot of gear on the front end that I use with tubes in them. You know, I have some vintage stuff and I have some modern, you know, I have manly stuff, I have old Trident stuff. Uh, it's important to sound going in. Uh, so once it gets in there and it sounds good, it shouldn't be a problem. And I, I enjoy working in my pajamas. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in my pajamas right now, as a matter of fact. <laughs> we're, we're, we're talking... We're talking here, Diane, and I'm sitting here in my pajamas and still enjoying my cold cup of coffee. Oh, there you go. Well, good. Mm. I'm glad. Yes. Nobody said this was going to be formal. So. I'm the least formal guy on the planet. So it sounds like, in in a lot of ways, that the uh, the advent of technology has made the business and then what you get out of it a little bit more personal in a way, because you can't, like, for instance, the the early records that you worked on, let's just say, like the Talking Head '77. What was that recorded on? Like, how much how much square footage? did you need to actually make that record? That was a tiny little, my, my entire, my living room is bigger than that studio. Yeah, yeah. Seriously. Okay. It's a little place, a little place called Sun Dragon. It was on 20th Street between 5th and 6th. It was in a loft. It, it was owned by uh, two partners. It was a, actually a jingle house. Of, uh, you know, they used to do jingles there most of the time. Of course, Tony, Tony Bon Jovi found the studio. Sundragon, Michael Ewing was one of the owners. Ned Lieben, who was in the band Riff Raff that I left Power Station for, uh, he was one of the guitar players, were co-owners. Michael lived in, on the in the Twentieth Street side, and Ned had a, like a little little bedroom. He didn't live there. He had another, he had another another loft in the same building. And Michael like was like a weed dealer, 
and uh, it had the slowest elevator in New York City, I swear to God. It was on the eighth floor. And I can't even imagine. We did the Ramones' first record there, as well as Talking Heads, 77. And I can't imagine, uh, you know, Monty Melnick telling his road crew to, you know, okay, just put those marshals and SVTs in this little tiny elevator, which you can only fit four people in. And it would shake. Wow. It was so slow. Mm-hmm. And you would, the door would open. You have to pre- The door would open, and there would be another door there, and you have to press a button to get in. And as soon as you press the, as soon as you opened up, the sweet smell of marijuana would be wafting through the air because Michael would be smoking pot constantly. It was hilarious, very funny. funny. And he'd be at the door and say, "Hey, dude, you want to hit?" It was like Cheech and Chong, very funny stuff. But that studio is very tiny. Uh, they had a great console. It was made by uh, Roger Mayer, um, who uh, was a British fellow uh, who invented the, the fuzz face and the Octavia. Octavia, whatever it was called, that Hendrix used. And he, he made fuzz boxes for Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page. And he got into uh, making some recording consoles and some compressors. And uh, they're, they're very rare. I don't know what happened to that console, but it was unbelievably clean sounding. Um, not to pat myself on the back, but you can really hear it on that Talking Head 77 record. The, the, the clarity, is, it just had some clarity to it that you don't hear on other on other consoles it was great it was done on 16 track 16 track studer uh-huh. uh, hardly any outboard gear at all just like a teletronics i like two-way and a poltec and that's about it you know a studer half-inch machine we did mix a uh, talking head 77 at media sound again one of my favorite places it was it was a tiny little place oh, okay. tiny 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 yeah. well, so my assumption was completely incorrect but i love the uh, the descriptions anyway <laughs> well, we did beef up the drums on Talking Head 77 by uh, re-miking them. And it was Chris Chris France's idea to, uh, I think it was No Compassion, we started off doing it. Uh, we put some speakers out into the room and re-miked them and sent, sent the drums out to the room because Media Sound was a, it was a Baptist church. It was a big church room. It was fantastic. But a great place to record. Nice. Cathedral-like, like natural um, reverb. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So we, you can you can actually hear it on, on if you listen closely to, especially on No Compassion, when uh, that that when the drums are by themselves, you can hear the room of media sound on there, and that's re mic you know, sent out to. I think it was probably a pair of uh, there's a lot of forty three tens, forty three elevens JBL speakers around at the time, so we probably used those out in the room, and, you know, mic them with a couple of eighty sevens, brought them back into the console. Uh, just like like an old chamber with reverb sound. Mm. Quick question from a listener: Do you have a go-to mic preamp preference? I actually have my my Avalon Seven Thirty Seven that I love. Um, I've had it for for years. I brought it uh, when when Dre purchased Record One. There's no outboard gear, so uh, I really wanted to put some tubes on the front end. Uh, the Avalon 737 is a you know, Class A vacuum tube preamplifier with a compressor and EQ in it. It's a channel strip, and I that's that's my go-to. I use it pretty much for everything. My other go-to would be a, a Manly uh, tube preamps. They're simpler than the uh, 737, but they're just very transparent and beautiful sounding. Their newest one is called the Manly Force, which is actually four tube preamps in one channel strip. And I, I also use the Manly Dual Mono. I don't think they're making that anymore. They're just incredibly clear, um, crystalline, transparent sound. They're beautiful. I love them. So those two are my favorites. So of course, 
you know, any chance to work on a Neve 1073, you know, if that was at my access, uh, a Neve console or a Trident original A series console, that would be my fave. You know. uh, at home, I do have some original uh, Trident FlexiMix modules. I have four of those that were uh, rumored to be in Queen's first uh, touring console. So, and I have no reason to doubt that. And they're very wonderful sounding as well. Oh, nice. It's, it's, but to shorten the question, yes, my Avalon 737 is my go-to. Is there any piece of gear that you wish would have sort of made it over into like the digital age, like something that that you just really can't replace but has disappeared over time? Universal Audio has emulated outboard gear. I mean, nothing can really replace outboard gear. And, you know, some of the, some people, some guys I know, you know, have, you know, tons of their collection. I never collected stuff. My acquiring of uh, audio gear probably started in, 2005 or so when I moved to Colorado uh, because I worked in recording studios, well-known recording studios for most of my career, and they had everything. So I never had the impetus to, you know, well, start collecting gear. But uh, especially Universal Audio has emulated the equipment um, so precisely that it's very difficult to tell the difference. Um, I have done A-B tests at uh, like the AES show, uh, Audio Engineering Society show, and uh, at NAM uh, with uh, the UA stuff. And but you know, I can I can honestly tell you, I cannot tell the difference. Also, the old gear needs to be maintained all the time, and in today's world where everybody's working in their bedroom, yes, um, you don't have maintenance guys that you say, "Hey, come on over here, this broke." Right. You know, there's this this fader scratchy, this pot's uh, scratchy. You know, the 2K isn't working. It's funny you should mention that because uh, while working at Record One uh, doing the Long Riders record, my assistant was this great gal, Lola, L-O-L-A, Lola. I asked her, you know, didn't they have plates here, EMT plates? And and uh, she wasn't sure. Then all of a sudden, you know, we noticed that they were outside in the parking lot. Uh-huh. <laughs> like behind the trash. There are three old 140 uh, EMT plates that weren't being used. Wow. So that just goes to show you. I mean, these things are treasured by people. Um, they're, <laughs> they're huge and cumbersome. You need four people to carry them. Right. Uh, this, is what, this is what the reverb, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen one, but these things are huge. Yes. You know, like 10 feet by, you know, four feet high with a big metal plate inside of them. Uh, you seriously do need it. There's, you have to put bars on the end of them. Uh, little insert pe- ho- holes, and you have to carry it. Um, and they had three of them out there. And they're like, thank God, what do they do? At least they were, uh, they were covered. They were in the area. They weren't out in the air. You know, they were in an area that was uh, had a, a roof over it. But uh, hmm. that's what that's what happens all of that kind of outboard gear. Yeah. Of course, you know, anything else like Fairchild's or Proltex or LA-2As or Neve modules, you know, you're not going to find those in the parking lot. Right. Yeah. People, people cherish those. If I could put a large room together, I would definitely definitely have that gear at my access, but that's not going to happen today. <laughs> I'm really happy that you're my guest, but I haven't even asked you about the Ramones. Oh. I guess I had thoughts about, because you did the Ramones and Talking Heads and Elder Reserve, which were all sire records, mm-hmm. it, like early, I was wondering if that was like a label thing. Well, it was, it was actually, it was Tony Bon Jovi, um, who... You know, Tommy, when they were, when the Ramones were going to do their second record, Leave Home, 
um, they wanted to choose a new producer. Um, although I think that the first album is fantastic and that Craig Leon and Tommy did a great job on that first record. But they wanted to change it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. And um, Tommy had worked as an assistant at Record Plant, uh, where Tony Bon Jovi uh, had been on staff for a while. And they actually worked on Hendrix Swims together. And uh, when it came time for record number two, Leave Home, uh, Tommy got a hold of Tony and said, Hey, Tony, you want to produce the Ramones? And so Tony came into it, and that's when I moved back to from the studio Morning Heights at that exact moment, like I said, right place, right time, um, to uh, my first project. My one, I guess it was one of the first projects. There's a couple other ones, but pretty much started up right away, uh, Ramones Leave Home. And... Um, you know, it was through Tony that I got into the Ramones thing. And then afterwards, you know, you know, uh, Seymour uh, was digging this, what I was doing. So ended up doing some more uh, and records with them, all the reserve and uh, lots of other stuff mm -hmm. over the years. Um, but it was also Tony um, who brought me to Talking Head 77. And uh, I think it was, well, we did a single that Tommy and Tony produced, uh, Love Goes to Building on Fire. Uh, before we did Talking Head 77. Oh. We did it as a single. And uh, did that at Sun Dragon as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Ed Stasium, you there? Howdy. Howdy. Fabulous. <laughs> Greetings from fabulous Poway, California. Excellent. Here we are on WFMU. Oh, Okay, so I've been doing these box sets. I've been asked to uh, curate the box sets for 40th anniversary of 40th anniversary releases of all the Ramones records. And uh, we did Leave Home earlier this year, and uh, Rocket to Russia was just released on uh, Friday, on Black Friday. What I do uh, when we put these together, I work with uh, a co my co-producer, my co-conspirator on these records, Bill, the great Bill Englott, who's done great work over his career, archiving and mastering and putting out uh, a lot of the Rhino stuff that uh, Bill's name is on. And he's a great guy and very knowledgeable about everything. He, he, he knows where everything is in every record company vault in the world. So he, he finds all this stuff and uh, gets it to me. They, they transfer it to digital, and I get the digital copies, and they're in Pro Tools. That's like and, an amazing uh, skill to know where everything is. Oh, my God. He knows where everything is. He finds these things. Like, there's a demo version of Needles and Pins. I don't know where he found it. I didn't record it. I never heard it in my life. It was, it's on the Dogger uh, <laughs> to Russia box set. Wow. And he, he just find, finds great stuff like that. You know, I've had a lot of stuff in my archives as well, but he just finds the quirkiest stuff. Nice. Amazing. And um, live stuff he finds and, uh, you know, gets a hold of the multi-tracks and makes sure he gets copies of the track sheets for me and sends me all this stuff uh, digitally on, on drives. I don't know if I mentioned it, but we did record Rocket to Russia again at Media Sound. You know, always going back to Media Sound. Um, yes. What I wanted to do, um, when I was working at the Studio Morin Heights, I had the fortunate uh, experience, a uh, very fortunate uh, experience of working with Roy Thomas Baker. Um, oh, really? The, the, the great British engineer producer. It was right at the peak of uh, Night at the Opera. You know, Bohemian Rhapsody was right up there on the top ten, and he came to the studio more in Heights to do a band called Pilot. Oh, yeah, I remember they, them. They had a hit. You know, oh, 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 it's, it's magic. magic. Oh. <laughs> and 
You know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Never uh-huh. believe it's not so. Yes. Yeah, that's yep. nice. Great yep. guys. Uh, they were doing a follow-up record. Um, Alan Parsons did that magic record, by the way. He's great, another great producer. Oh, yeah. And uh, when Nick Lagona, uh, the other engineer at the studio, Morn Heights, and I set up for this date, we put the drums in a drum booth, which was uh, the go-to means of recording drums back in those days. Yes. And when Roy came in the next day in his great Monty Python voice said, Oh, what are the drums doing in that booth? Let's get them out here in the room and get some of this lovely ambient sound. Um, so uh, moved the drums out. And I'm like, you know, I had basically learned myself and everything was about being dead. Carpeting and baffling and right. putting tape on drum heads back then. And Roy was, no, put the drums in the room and put the room mics on the other side of the room and use those. You know, wow. What, really? Hmm. And so this really, it was a revelation to me. It inspired me. So I, this was the, really the first opportunity I had to use that at, in a large room was recording Rocket to Russia. So I put, it was a huge room. Like I mentioned earlier, it was cathedral-like. It was huge. It was a church, and it sounded amazing. So when, I first, when Bill first got me the uh, multi-tracks, I knew that the first thing I would listen to were those room mics. And uh, they just sounded amazing. It, it's the band live in the studio. You know, we tracked those. We probably set up and tracked all the songs for Rocket to Russia in two days, easily. And, you know, one or two takes, no click track, no, no you know, no bull going on, just straight Ramones. Mm. And uh, I thought that uh, a good variation that the fans would enjoy, because that's what these boxes are about. They're about, you know, getting stuff out there that the fans have not heard. Yes. Um, the, the idea, my, my concept would be to, let's just have a raw, back-to-basics uh, Ramones record here. Let's not put any, no double-track vocals, no guitar overdubs, no percussion, um, no, no double-track guitar, just the tracking as they sounded in the studio with a lot of that room mic in the mix. So what the, that mix is, and I did that for all, all of the tracks that were recorded uh, for Rocket to Russia, is uh, basically bringing up the room mics and then bringing up the band around the room mics. So it sounds, that is just the band playing. There's no edits in there. There's no, there might be one splice or something, but you know that's the band playing in the studio. It's as live as you can get. Mm. It's, um, it's the real deal. It's all Ramones all the time, a balls to the wall. It's, I, I love it. I think it's great. So uh, it's just powerful Ramones, and there were, there, you, there were you know one to three tracks of Joey's vocal in all of the songs. So I made uh, new composite vocals to, to uh, add to that. There, there's no, no reverb on it. There's no effects. It's just pure, simple Ramones. Wow. That's what that mix is. That's what that mix is all about. Neat. How did you um, go into doing the, uh, the you know, the Joey Ramone, the posthumous record? Oh, boy. You know, um, Joey's uh, estate, Joey's brother, Mickey, uh, we've, we've been friends forever, uh, wanted me to resurrect the, uh, the demos that Daniel Ray had uh, done with Joey on uh, probably four-track Fostex or something, I remember. Um, some of them weren't even digital. They were uh, done on Fostex, you know, this like four-track cassette multi-tracks. Mm. And so I basically, fortunately, they were, they were all done with, uh, for this project, fortunately. They were all done with drum machines. So I was able to uh, go into basically a, a grid on Pro Tools manually. It was 
time, very time consuming. And, um, you know, did some editing on the songs to make them a little bit better songs and used only Joey's original vocal on them. And then, um, you know, brought in, did the drums and bass and had a lot, a lot of Joey's friends come in and play on them. Um, you know, we had Richie Ramone play on there. Dennis Dyken played on the track. Uh, yes. Bunny, Car- Bunny Carlos played on it. And uh, uh, Thunderbolt Patterson. Uh, oh, yes. Play- played on uh, a couple tracks as well. Mm-hmm. He played on the, the, the one track that I really love, New York City. Mm-hmm. You know, Little, Little Stevens on that, and Genya Rabon's on there, and Handsome Dick Manitoba. And it, was, it was cool. It was fun. Um, a lot of people were going, oh, you know, these should have been left alone. But, you know, it was, I think it was a nice tribute to Joey because all of his friends on there, and we made a real record out of it. It was, uh, it was a labor of love, that's for sure. And if they're left alone, then nobody gets to hear them. You know, he's got yeah. one of the classic yeah, and, voices of you know, an era. The state of the demos wasn't that great. It was they were like, you know, demos. It right. didn't sound that great. Yeah. Um, so we, we were able to resurrect them to everybody's liking, apparently. There's a really great video. I forgot the director's name, but it's on YouTube uh, for uh, New York City. Joey Ramone's New York City. Really great, uh, um, really great video. Mm. Uh, incorpor- incorporating different personalities. And uh, it's a stop-motion video with, with real people. It's, it's, it's excellent. I don't know if you've seen it. It's really cool. I haven't, but I'll look for it. I'm oh, gonna check it out. Yeah, it's really cool. So who was the most relaxed out of the Ramones, like in the studio? Like who really enjoyed the studio process most? Tommy. Tommy. You know, he, he, was, the, he was at home. You know, he was my co-producer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even, even though Tony Bon Jovi and Tommy are credited with, you know, producing uh, Leave Home and Rocket to Russia, Tony was there and he did contribute quite a bit, but Tommy was the guy who was there all the time for every bit. None of the other guys uh, spent as much time in the studio as Tommy. Tommy was the architect. You know, he rehearsed the band. He, he did a lot of the writing. You know, he was there for everything. We, we got along great. Um, we, were, we were great collaborators. Uh, you know, I love all of them. I love Tommy. I love Joey. Um, but Tommy was definitely the most at ease. And Joey as a performer. You know, Tommy did have the technical aspect of him. Uh, Johnny would do his job and leave, same with Dee Dee, unless he was doing a vocal. And, you know, Johnny would come in after a day, usually after a day's work when Tommy and I would, you know, pr- you know occasionally would put on extra guitars and, um, you know, backing vocals, and Johnny would come in and uh, give it a thumbs up or thumbs down at the end of the day. And for mixes as well, Johnny would attend at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Tommy was there backing tracks to mastering. The whole backing tracks, overdubs, um, mixing and mastering, Tommy was there for every second. How many um, takes was average for them? One or two. Really? Yeah, easy. Yeah, one or two. Wow. And, you know, they wanted to get it done, and it was so well rehearsed. Yes. I mean, you listen, listen to this tracking mix, or just, you know, listen to uh, you know, any, you know, Leave Home or Rocket to Russia, those two. Uh, granted, we did spend more time on Road to Ruin, but Leave Home and Rocket to Russia, they were done, they were done quickly. Mm-hmm. They were done really fast, and, you know, we knocked off those one or two days, of, you know, Maybe something on the third day, but those tracks were done very quickly. Wow! With, with no editing, and it was painless because they were so good. And Rocket to Russia, especially, they were at the top of their game. Tommy was amazing. You know, he, he didn't like bash the drums, didn't hit them hard, but he had the the feel, the right feel for the band, and he just hit them just right, so it sounded so powerful. Nice. 
Awesome. Not in, not surprising. In, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's go back. Gladys Knight and the Pips. Woohoo! Oh, that's right. Midnight yes. Train. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. As I mentioned earlier, I was in Detroit recording those vocals when my house was flooded. So that was weird. Early on, you know, I had just started engineering, working for Venture Sound for Tony Camello. And uh, he was buddies with Neil Bogart at Buddha Records. Later, Neil Bogart went on to uh, start Casablanca Records. Yes. Uh, I, know, I think Kiss was on that label, weren't they? I yeah, believe so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. And, and other, other stuff. But Neil loved Tony, so he got... Uh, Neil lured Gladys and, and the boys away from uh, uh, Motown. Their first record uh, on Buddha was a, was, was a smash. You know, who knew? We had done... That was the third attempt at doing a backing track for uh, Midnight Train. Um, we had uh, Tony at that time, Tony Camello, um, would have his method of doing his records. And usually there were like three guitar players, two keyboard players, like the Spectre thing. Um, a little smaller than the Spectre, crowding all those people in the room, but still. There would be like electric piano, acoustic piano, three guitars, bass, drums, uh, strings, double track, horns, double track. And then, you know, make these kind of cookie-cutter tracks. And he had attempted twice in different arrangements to do Midnight Train and would send them to Gladys. And she's like, nope, nope, don't like it. He's more of an owl. And on the last attempt, the third time, uh, Tony had mentioned that uh, Gladys wanted more of an Al Green kind of feel. So I remember it was a Sunday night, like in the middle of the summer. And it was in New Jersey uh, in this basement studio. It was a hot day. Um, I remember Jeff Mirnoff, the guitar player, was sunburned from being at the beach all day. He started like at 9 o'clock at night. There was Jeff Mirnoff on guitar, Bob Babbitt on bass, Andrew Smith on drums, and Tony Camello on the keyboard. And just did it, uh, tracked it that way, and uh, later on added the strings and horns, and then did the vocals in Detroit, and then went back and mixed it at uh, Tony's place. But uh, it was the first, one of the great moments in, I, I think, any performer or performer's life or a producer or engineer is hearing your song on the radio. Yeah. And at that time, WABC mm. in New York was still the big, you know, WABC! Bing! Bing! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> WABC! Bonk! Yeah. At that time, I was actually, you know, more into the... I was listening to WNEWFM, as we all were at that time, probably. Mm -hmm. But um, since I knew it was climbing up the charts, uh, I would be listening to uh, WABC uh, on my little, uh, little transistor radio. And I remember washing dishes in a home I was living in in Somerville, New Jersey uh, that I had moved to after the flood and uh, the radio was right up on top and it was Dan Ingram on the air and it was the first time I heard it and it was like the week before it went to number one and uh, it was just so exciting to hear that song on the radio and knowing that I had been a part of it and it was such a great song and Gladys is such a talent. She did that vocal in one take. Really? One take, and of course, I'm in a studio in Detroit, and I did. I had no idea of what I was doing. You know, I'm a, I'm a kid. You know, um, and I'm. I knew I, I had an LA2A at Camelo's Teltronics compressor, so I had that on it. I think it was a Spectrosonics console in that studio in Detroit. Artie Fields, it was called Artie Fields. Artie Fields recording. Put up a U87 and put guest at the microphone level because she said, Eddie. 
I want to sing right now. Here I go. And she just zipped out. And so I just had a guess at all the settings. Wow. Didn't have any time to run it down and get a level, nothing. She just sang it, first take, done. That was it. Wow. We went back to, uh, um, a couple weeks later. She wasn't happy with something in the band. In the, uh, I got to go, I got to go. Somewhere <laughs> around there. And she uh, wanted to redo just one line in there. So we went into Bell Sound in New York City and just punched it in. Wow. And uh, it, it was a, it was a great moment. I'm so proud to have been associated with Gladys and and actually every other artist that I've been fortunate to work with. Oh yeah, it, yeah, baby. Yeah, <laughs> kudos. I mentioned earlier that we only had a record player in the house. My mom worked for Johnson Johnson in New Jersey for Ethicon, and she won a um, a numbers game. They used to have like put everybody put a dollar in. And you mm-hmm. guess numbers, and at the end of the day, you bring a paper bag full of money home. One day, she brought a paper bag full of money home. Nice. And and it was like eight hundred dollars, which is a fortune in um, nineteen sixty-five. And um, she says, "I'm going to buy a real stereo." And she bought a stereo, and uh, you know, one of these Magnavox console stereos with an AM/FM radio in it, and uh, tone controls, and a mono button, and you know, balance controls, and bass and treble. And I, you know, they're like, "Oh my God, this is amazing!" And uh, the first record I bought, first two, was uh, The Beatles' Help and uh, Righteous Brothers' Blue-Eyed Soul. I mean, they weren't the first records I bought, but they were the first stereo records that I bought. Mm-hmm. And I put on um, The Beatles' record, and by the time it got to um, Another Girl, I noticed that the guitar was on one side and the reverb from the guitar was on the other side. And it was a startling revelation for me. I'm there, oh my God, this is wonderful. And I just kept listening to one side with, with the balance control, listening to the one side and then switching to the other side and listening to the album over and over again for like hours. <laughs> and uh, that's how I got in. That was my first experience with stereo. I hadn't right. heard stereo until then. Under- I was like 16 years old. Never hear her stereo. Understanding panning and, and that you can put yeah. things in different places. Yes. That's cool. It was amazing. Well, Ed, I Ed, thank you so much for coming on the show, and and uh, I'm I'm not at a loss of words. I'm never at a loss for words. But your recollections are amazing. And, but your oh, thank you. But your achievements are just well beyond amazing. So well, that, like you know, I said, right place, right time, a little bit of talent, and a lot of luck. Well, I th- I think that 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 the talent part starts to go higher at some point when the equation gets to be decades. Okay, so, I'll put it up one more point. Good, <laughs> and um, thank you for being on the show. I oh, thanks for I, thanks for having me. You've been very uh, very pleasurable to, to speak with. Hmm. You had you know Yay. you had good questions, and uh, it was a. Uh, very nice, very pleasurable experience. And uh, I loved hearing that Cool and the Gang tried to give you a cure for hiccups. <laughs> amazing. That's just so so wonderful. I'm going to look up Hector the Garbage Collector. And, yes, uh, please do. I'm and gonna... uh, Skull Snaps, it's a new day. And be on the lookout for Sihasen, the new record out in the spring. Yes, a, yes, I absolutely duo. will. It's a lot to say. So we are done here, sir. Thank you tremendously. Okay. Thank you for listening to WFMU. There you go. Ed, thank you very much. Thank you, Diane. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. And that concludes another podcast episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. More on the way. Thanks to Liz Berg for handling the in-house podcast duties here at WFMU. I am Diane Kamikaze. Check my Twitter and my Instagram Handle is one word, Diane Kamikaze. Kamikaze ends with an E. 
On Facebook, you can find me as Diane Kamikaze Farris, Rocker for Life and Making a Difference. Yes, my Facebook page has 10 words in it. My regular show is on Thursdays from noon to 3 p.m. for an expanded version with lots and lots of music, wisecracks, and fun stuff. The full link to my uh, index of shows and podcasts is can be found on wfmu.org slash playlists slash DK. Those are, that's a capital D and a capital K. I'm going to be working on encore presentations, and I've got years of old interviews and podcasts. So if there's something that you'd like to see reposted that you missed, please get in touch. Send me email, diane at wfmu.org. And be sure to subscribe to the show. And if you like it, please rate it and review it. Wow. WFMU. Peer pressure. Thank you. See you next time.